Antonio. Mira. Watch what happened to your friend. You don't want this to happen to you? Let me the money, okay? the Film 89 podcast. I'm Sky. I'm Steve. And joining us tonight is a returning guest host and our dear friend. He lives not too far away from Steve and I, but unfortunately he's had to join us tonight via Skype. It's seasoned podcaster and master cinephile, Mr. Leighton Winston. Leighton, welcome back, sir. Good evening, guys. How we doing? Oh, good, man. Good. Uh, This is, well, this is episode 94. Can you believe it? And tonight's episode is a double bill of films from legendary director Brian De Palma, both of which happen to star one of our all-time favourite actors, Al Pacino. De Palma's 1983 remake of Howard Hawks' 1932 crime drama Scarface, which is 40 years old this year. The other film we're going to be discussing is his pseudo-follow-up, 1993's Carlito's Way, which, math heads, is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. Gents, De Palma finally on Film 89. I don't think we've... At long last. Yeah, I don't think we've covered any De Palma films in depth on this podcast yet. Not not a single De Palma film before now? Not a single De Palma film yet. This, these are going to be the first ones, which is just unbelievable. Wow, no pressure. So, let's start with the first of these two films. Scarface, 1983. When did you first see it, and what kind of relationship have you had with this film over the 40 years? And there's a reason why I'm asking that specific question. Um, because I'm the oldest. Um, I actually saw it in the 80s. It was one of those films which, you know, it captured the is it the zeitgeist of the time. Every teenager wanted to see it because of the violence, because of the language. It was one of those films which teenagers all tried to rebel in little ways. And this was, you know, a little way of rebelling by watching um, this film. I had a poster in my bedroom wall. And I remember it was a two-sided poster, which you don't see now anymore, I don't think. And on the one side, you had the classic black and white, you know, pose of the... Um, that you get on the, um, the the poster with Al Pacino standing there. And the other side was Al Pacino crouching down with a gun in his hand and it said, say hello to, to my little friend. Yeah. And that was on my uh, my wall as well. And um, this is, we're going back late 80s we are. But yeah, it was 
it was every kid's rebel film because of the violence, because of the attitude of the film. Yeah, it was. It was. It had some notoriety, didn't it, for the level of violence, which we'll come to later when um, the Palmer was submitted to the MPAA to be uh, given this rating, and also the amount of f bombs in the film. Yeah. 212? 207, 207, I believe, which uh, I think at the time was a record. I believe it's been superseded since then. Yes, by yeah. a certain Martin Scorsese film. I believe it has, one which we were just talking about before we were recording. Yes, yes, the and Wolf that, of that's Wall Street. got over double yeah. the number of F-bombs. Yeah. I'll, I'll go next. Um, I think I first saw Scarface in the mid-90s. It would have been on VHS. I don't ever remember watching it on television. Because, uh, you know, if I had, it also would have been cut down. Yeah, yeah. Definitely think it was VHS. Not sure what the situation was at the time when I first saw it, if it was the uncut version. I've got a bit of a bizarre relationship with the film because as much as certainly during that time in my life, in the, in the kind of mid to late 90s, crime films, gangster films, crime dramas, call them what you want, they made up a huge portion of my film diet. I mean, at least 60% of the films that I would watch on repeat would be films like... Casino, Goodfellas, Heat, Mean Streets. You know, I would watch them ad infinitum. Scarface, I didn't actually... That wouldn't have appeared on a list of my favourite films of that kind for quite a long time. In fact, I think it's only in the last five years that I've really, really grown to appreciate this film. I always found its its 80s-ness to be kind of so smack you in the face that and I don't like I don't like the term the film has aged badly and the film is of its time because I like it when films are of their time they're supposed to be but this film was so excessively 80s it didn't have that kind of romantic factor that films like The Godfather and like Goodfellas have it, it had a kind of more cheap down dirty street level yeah, it's not ageless like those no films. it's not is it it's very much of early 80s you know Miami but those very aspects of the film now and others, I've just I've grown to love them. And on the last couple of watches of this film, it's gone from being a film that I appreciate to a film that I got to say it I do love. And I I'll save where I'm going to rank it amongst the Palmer's films till later. But yeah, I, I certainly have come around in in recent years to really appreciate this film. What do you got to remember is when I was watching it, it was the era of Miami Vice, yeah, and all that. Yeah. I know they came later. Yeah. I'm sure they were influenced by Scarface. But that kind of eightiness, mm. cheesiness, if you wish, mm-hmm. that was everywhere. That you put the TV on, and it was everywhere. Mm. So it, it, perhaps because I'm, you know, a bit, little bit older than you guys, it was something I grew up with. Yeah, you know, so and, and that would that wouldn't have, that, yeah, that would have seemed me. perfectly normal at the time, yeah, wouldn't yeah. it? Because it was in the context of that era, whereas mm. I saw it just outside of that era, which I think just at that point, where the point where that was, yeah, was cheesy. That stuff was cheesy, and it wasn't cool. Yeah, yeah. not at the nineties were any less cheesy, you know, in certain mm. ways. Late, what about you? I remember vividly the, the video um, uh, uh, coming out in 84. Again, harking back to previously, we talk about the video shop era. And that, that poster is, is so striking um, with the black and white and the red logo and whatnot, the lettering. It's so striking. And there was rumours that, you know, there was a kid that saw it, their parents had it. And much like yourself, I don't think I saw it properly until the 90s when... Um, when that that wave of like you you referred to so those those nineties uh, films, you Reservoir Dogs, Goodfellas, those crime films as you say, that I watched it and I did enjoy it. And then the DVD era comes comes around and DVDs explode. Uh, everybody's got has got the the, the, the films again because transitioning to VHS to DVD, 
And I bought it. It, it, it with loads and loads of extras, um, as is the want at the time of the DVD market. And having rewatched it for this tonight, I got to be honest with you, I was a little disappointed with it on a revisit. I totally agree with what you said about the eighties um, influence. Like you say, Miami Vice probably is the biggest influence of all. But I found the film garish, which lends itself to that early 80s. And I found it um, with the neon lighting and the soundtrack, that late 70s, early 80s, Giorgio Moroder phase, the late Mm. disco to the early 80s. I've got thoughts. I have thoughts on it. Uh, well, I think if you if you're levying that as a as a as a criticism, Leighton, I can't disagree with any of it. But I do also think that it comes down to a matter of perspective and the way you're willing to look at the film. And I looked at the film for a long time exactly like you are now, and negatively so. And I don't know what it is. Something clicked in me. A switch kind of was flicked. And now those things that I used to think and you know the bit where. Al Pacino's dancing in a nightclub and he looks like a complete buffoon. I, I used to think, oh, De Palma, are you openly taking the piss out of this character? And and it is, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's I showing that it the guy has got no class. Yeah. And you know, he's, he's a street-level hoodlum, isn't he, of, yeah. of the kind of, you know, of, of a low level. Yeah. He, he's not your type like like Michael Corleone, who was... No, no, he's a a very rough time, and is Tony Montana, isn't he? Yeah, and I think once you kind of resolve yourself of that, all of those things that I used to look on negatively towards the film now have just gone, and what's left now is just this kind of appreciation for the film that I've never had, and I really have come around on this film in a big time in, like, I think the last five years, and, yeah, I I do see it far differently, and... It'll contrast nicely with when we move on to the second film and some of my thoughts on that. But let's talk about the the making of the film. So the 1932 Scarface, that was produced by Howard Hughes, directed by Howard Hawks and starring Paul Mooney. And that was, in, in some ways, a different film to the Palmas, but essentially it was about the rise and fall of a gangster. That film was set in Prohibition-era Chicago. This one, the cocaine world of early 80s Miami. Now, De Palma says that Scarface was the first time that he truly worked with a great actor and a truly great script, something he says he hadn't done up until this point. Do you agree with that? No. No, not at all. Not at all, no. 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 This no. is the man who made uh, Carrie. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's, that's bullshit. That's a classic. Is he is he saying that's the first time he worked with a truly great actor? What about Sissy Spacer? Yeah, I know that's that's exactly what I was just going to say. And Piper Laurie and Piper Laurie, who are both absolutely superb yeah. in Carrie and Nancy Allen and John Travolta in Blowout yes, yeah. and yeah, Dressed to Kill. Yeah, that's that's the sensational headline, isn't it? Let's be honest. Unless it was a case of he was so bowled over by Pacino in comparison to those actors, maybe, and maybe this was the first time he he felt truly in control of one of his films. Or well, maybe it was they were all actors and Pacino's a star. True. Yeah. Mm. It's as simple as that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and don't forget, we are talking about Al Pacino, the, the star of The Godfather and The Godfather 2, Dog Day Afternoon. And question, really, at that time, one of the greatest living actors working in the world. So if from that perspective, then, yeah, I could probably see what he's on about because you're talking about Al Pacino at the top of his, of his powers. So yeah. in that respect, because with with all due respect, you know, Sissy Spacek was re- was a known face, wasn't she, when Carrie came out? Yeah. Piper Laurie was known. But the thing is, we're not talking levels here that we're talking about Al Pacino. No. You know, I, forget, I think... the, God, God, the Godfather was the biggest film of all time as well, you know, yeah. a couple of years prior to this. 
he so, was, yeah, of course. You know, so perhaps that's what he means there. But hmm. Oliver, Oliver Stone, this was this the first film or the second film that was made of of, of one of his scripts because they, they were. It, it, it was it was it the Michael Caine film The Hand or something. Well, he like made it? The Hand before this, yes. Yeah. Because this is one of the reasons why he took on Scarface is because of The Hand's yeah. lack of success. Yeah. Mm, right. So producer Martin Bregman he'd approached Oliver Stone, who wrote this screenplay for this remake, and Stone at the time was paid a record salary for a screenwriter. Sidney Lumet had wanted a director, and he'd come up with the idea of the Cuban element to this story. Stone was dealing with his own cocaine habit at the time, and he moved to France to write the script somewhere where he could stay clean. Now, Lumet wanted to take the film in a more political direction, and Bregman, not liking this idea, looked for another director and then approached Brian De Palma. He liked Oliver Stone and Bregman's script, saying that it was a modern version of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which, yeah, yeah. it is, mm. with, with, where, where the gold of that film was replaced by cocaine in this film. And it is very, you know, that film is very much about greed, corrupting, corrupting someone, yeah. and and the way Bogart's character just gets, you know, corrupted by greed yeah. is just, you That's know, a perfect. Uh, yeah, Al Pacino loved the script and the direction they had taken this version of Scarface, saying it, it had retained elements from the Hawks version, like well, the overbearing, possessive brother to a younger sister who cracks when he finds out that his partner Manny has started a relationship with her, and then he kills him, pretty much in the same way in this film. Stone had recognised the importance of carrying over these elements, but brought it up to date by bringing in the mountains of cocaine. Tony's surname, Montana, was Oliver Stone's uh, reference to one of his favourite NFL players, and Steve is what is wearing a San Francisco 49ers top, as if by magic. Because, yeah, obviously Joe Montana was a... Was an idol, yeah, yes. Yeah, an idol of his. Before we get on to the, the, the big hitter, and we have, also, we have obviously mentioned him, let's talk about the supporting cast. Stephen Bauer as Manny. I think he is one of the MVPs of this film. Oh, he is, yeah. He, he helped Pacino with a Latino accent and mannerisms, but there's just something about him as, as this sort of reliable partner, best friend, confidant, everything. Kind of like, he's almost, in many ways, as much as he is a gangster study, he's kind of like the, the angel on Tony's shoulder, kind of steer him in the, in the right direction. Yes, and, and he doesn't want the power because there's a, a yeah. line earlier on, yeah. Robert Logier says, you know, never underestimate the other man's greed. Mm. And of course, Manny, he doesn't have that. You know, he, he wants the simple life almost. You know, he wants the luxury and everything like that, but he doesn't mm. want every, he doesn't want the world, which is what uh, Man, Montana wants. Yeah, that's what he wants, yeah. Yeah. He should have made a mega star after this. He really should yeah. have been. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's a good-looking guy. He's charismatic. He holds his own against Pacino, at least we forget, you know, throughout the yeah. film. And he really does. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I think he's brilliant. He, he, he never looks daunted by the, the prospect of going up against Pacino. No, no, no. And I think the, the two of them work perfectly together because he's more kind of um, light-hearted and, you know, more of a ladies' man, whereas Tony is more kind of serious. and Yeah, and I think that even though Manny is a, um, a ladies' man and there's a scene right at the beginning when he's leaning out of the car and he's grabbing this woman's um, bikini and he's yeah. like, and, but he never comes across as sleazy throughout the film, which is a, a bit of a, um, you know, a tightrope to walk. Mm. I mean, whereas Tony keeps away from women apart from yeah. um, Michelle Pfeiffer, but he's sleaze personified. Yeah, yeah. What about Michelle Pfeiffer as Elvira? Now, she was virtually an unknown at this point, and I think another bit of perfect casting. She is ice cold. 
She is, isn't she? Now, she, it, she, she auditioned with Pacino and Bregman, and he says that she brought out the best in Pacino, and she, she kind of brought his performance really to life when she was brought on board. Yeah, and De, uh, De Palma didn't want her, um, and it was Bregman who actually um, pushed and got her in to, uh, to audition with Al Pacino to convince yeah. De Palma. Do you, and she, she gives off this ice-cold kind of heartless kind of woman Yes, but she breaks as well. You can yeah. see the yeah. you can see the, Do, the weight of it on this. On the well. scene where she breaks, where I don't know if she was just actually breaking in real life and, and laughing at Pacino, but no, the bit in the car where he's trying on the hat. Oh and, yeah, and she. Yeah. I I don't see that as acting. To me, that seems like really genuine, like as if she is just laughing. If it is acting, it's brilliant. Oh yeah, she just turns out to it. Looks yeah, at him and she looks and she looks yeah. away and she's laughing. Yeah. That I think that is one of my favourite scenes with a pair of them. I was going to say, though, do, do you know, though, she really smiles throughout the film. Yeah, which when when it when she does smile, and it makes it all the more exactly, kind yeah, of... Yeah, exactly. And the, the thing is, yeah. because because it's alluded to that she's constantly medicating, isn't it, throughout. She had, yeah. She's either drinking or she's snorting or what have you, or smoking cigarettes even as well. She's like this un, un, unattainable object to begin with for Tony, isn't it? Mm. And, you know, like I said, he's, he's the rough diamond, and she is literally the, the cut-perfect crystal. So you know, yeah. she is the, the 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 ultimate object of desire. I, I know, I know. He gets a, a pet tiger, and <laughs> you know the the castle and the mansion and all the rest. But she is his ultimate prize in a lot of ways. Yeah, and there's a great scene when you you talk about her snorting and drink. There's one scene where she snorts, then she lights up a cigarette, and yeah, she and takes a drink all within about yeah. twenty seconds. Yeah, yeah. 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 You, you can't imagine that she um she she lived that long. No. no. Yeah, with, no. A, with a no. lifestyle like that. No. And it's mad, going back to Pfeiffer, though, this was her second film after Grease 2. Oh, of course, she was yes, in that, yeah. wasn't she? And, and that was a bomb. Perhaps De Palma probably had one eye on that, because at least we forget, Grease was enormous, wasn't it? You know? Oh, yes. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, when Grease 2 was mentioned, you know, Travolta definitely wasn't coming back, Olivia Newton-John, they were on their separate um, paths to stardom or lack thereof. Mm. The, the, the cast of Grease 2 were, were virtually unknown. And, you know, for her to get, like, the Sandy role, you know, that like, like, like Steve said, that film absolutely bombed, mainly because it's terrible. But you know, I, I'm not I'm not a fan of Greece to begin with. My to just get that off with. But you had two star making turns in Greece, didn't you? In with Travolta and Livy Newton John. Travolta goes on to do Saturday Fever the same year as Greece. And you know, I think they were trying to get lightning in the bottle again and it just never happened. But yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer's second film, you go in from this bubblegum nineteen fifties musical to nineteen eighties excess in a matter of, what was it, a year apart, I think they were, or what have you. She is, she is really, really good in this, in fairness. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's yeah. fantastic, yeah. And, well, let's talk about the other female in the film, the main female role. Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio's Tony's sister, Gina. That was a hard role. Yeah. It was a hard role. This this relationship is so weird. It has massive ramifications, ultimately, doesn't it? And mm. she's she's really, really good as, the, you know, the young, naive girl you know, in this new setting, in this new world of, um, yeah. you know, crime. Yeah, that eager, the wide-eyed yeah. eagerness. And yes, when, when he exactly. comes back into her life, she, she, you can see clearly she fawns over a big brother that she hasn't seen for God knows how long. Mm. Yeah. But then, yeah, like you say, Leighton, it becomes uncomfortable, doesn't it? And there's definitely a huge overtone of, of like an incestuous sort of thing from Tony. <laughs> it's it's weird. And like I alluded to earlier, when on the rewatch, 
there's a little bit too much lingering. It, 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 I can understand if you're trying to um, set this perspective that Tony has this unhealthy obsession with his sister, but the lingering is just a little bit too much. Well, yeah, I think, you know, but it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable, isn't it? Oh, it's yeah, not absolutely. supposed to be. Absolutely. I, I think if you held back on that, it, it, it wouldn't be in any ways as effective. Yeah. And, you know, elements of that, even in the 1932 version, you could, you know, they're there to be read into quite clearly. I've I got to put but, my hands up. I've never seen the original. So I'll I'll defer to you on this. But but not not as overt as they are here. But, I, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's done to a necessary degree. Right, let's talk about... There's someone in the film who I... I don't think he's particularly well cast, and I gotta say it, Robert Loggia as Frank Lopez. Yeah. He's terrible. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Okay. You see, yeah, you, you saved me there, Leighton, having to go and he, say that. But Robert Loggia is awful in this. He doesn't come off, come across as convincing. Uh, mm-hmm. He's not particularly menacing. Nope. <laughs> Dare I say, his his fake tan is really bad. Yeah. Uh, I got. I got to give Mercedes a little bit of a round of applause to allowing themselves to be associated with this criminal organization being run out of the back of a Mercedes garage. Yeah. Which is, um, you know, surprising in the least. But um, he's terrible. He's really, really bad. He's got no depth. Not not depth. No heft. No, he's got no heft as a villain. See, you don't. Yeah. No. Right. Whereas, right, Paul Chenard as Alejandro Souza, he has. Oh, he has. He absolutely has. He's got and menace. He's got menaces, yeah, isn't he? Even when yeah. he's polite, you yeah. feel the threat. Yeah. yeah. Is, is yeah. he right? Is he based on anyone other than Pablo Escobar? No, it's Escobar all Cause, over. Because to me, when, when I when I watch this, I I think of of Escobar that we saw in um, in Blow, the, the Johnny Depp yeah. film, where he shows what what he's willing to do to those who cross him. And talking about another one of the um, supporting cast, F. Murray Abraham as Omar. Now, I I like him in this film. Oh, I do as well. I yeah, really yeah, like him. Yeah. And I like, if anything, he's underused, I think, because yeah. um, I think he could have yeah. provided a lot more. Men- if he had the Robert Lugia part, I think it would have worked much better. Yeah, and, and, and I like the fact that there's so much animosity between him and Tony, and from the very start, he doesn't yeah. like Tony, looks down on him. He sees him as, as street-level hoodlum, not that he's much better at all. But then I love that scene, that sit-down scene between Souza, Omar, and Tony, where they're talking about, they're basically looking at, to set up a relationship between Souza and Lopez. And the fact that Tony clearly undermines Omar, and the fact that Omar hasn't got the balls to take that sort of business relationship further. And then there's also the thing that Souza does a bit of behind the scenes digging on him and finds mm-hmm. out that he was a rat. And and the way he deals with him, with the hanging him from the helicopter. Yeah, I mean that—that you know. that, that is a genius execution. <laughs> isn't it, isn't it just, yeah. Have you seen the way they filmed that? No. Oh, because it's not a dummy or anything. What? It was He's on a um, harness, is he? So, no. First of all, they threw a uh, um, stuntman out of the helicopter, yeah. wearing a harness, you know, around his back, but he still had the rope around his neck to make it look. And then, for the close-ups, they actually hung F. Murray Abraham up from a crane, yeah, and to film him, you know, so that it was real people all throughout. Right. Shit. Yeah. It's, it's it's grim. It's, it, it is. It it's it grim. Is. And the thing is, it perfectly sums up this 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 world that these people live in, isn't it? Because mm. rather than just put a bullet in the back of his head, no, I'm going to make a, a, a rather grand statement, shall we say. And, and Tony gives a perfect reaction, doesn't he? He's not overly phased by it. He's like, no. yeah, I didn't like him anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. In, in some ways, Souza is doing, well, a lot of ways, he's doing Tony a favour. Yeah, yeah. Because obviously Tony then completely takes... 
Omar's place, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And he also reminds you of the danger of the um, of that world. Yeah. There's a um, story that uh, Oliver Stone says that he, when he was doing research, he went down to Colombia and these places, mm-hmm. and he was interviewing cartel bosses, and he mentioned a district attorney from Miami, and they suddenly got very suspicious. Maybe he was working for the cops, mm-hmm. and he said it was perfect because we needed that danger. Yeah. Now, I would have just left, you know, I wouldn't have gone there in the first yeah. place. But he said that's just what he needed was to remind himself of the danger of the, these people. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and that scene, throwing F. Murray Abraham mm. out of the helicopter, that's perfect. It's one of many memorable deaths in the film, one of which we'll come to uh, shortly. <laughs> but the other bit of casting, I, I, but I really do, like I like Harris Eulin. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Harris Eulin. <laughs> and I, lo- I absolutely love the bit where, after Tony has dispatched, he's got rid of Lopez, Mm. Harris Eulin is still trying to maintain some level of dignity thinking he's going to get out of this obviously he isn't because then <laughs> Tony shoots him in, in, in the stomach yeah but he still carries on yeah yeah <laughs> he still keeps his composure he does yeah I think he I think he's he's brilliant my, my really notes ex- say exactly Harris Eulin that guy because he's one of those isn't he you see his face and it's like I know that guy what do I know yeah. him from and he, he's, there's, a, there's one in Carlito's way as well but um, we'll wait until we get around to that one. But yeah, Harris Eulin, is, <laughs> he's, been, he's still going. He was in um, Ozark, I think it was, recently. How old is he? Huh? He must be in his 90s. He's, he's, he's in his late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, he's still going. He's still going. I was really surprised to read. That that confrontation of Lopez is brilliantly shot, too, because it's around the table, isn't the meeting in the back of the garage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, the tracking shot that goes around the table, so it's almost from everybody's perspective, which is classic De Palma going around the room, isn't it? It's, it's a brilliantly shot scene, and it's and it clearly shows Tony's intentions going forward. It's so well shot. Who, who's the actor that plays um, Lopez's sort of main heavy? Uh, I, I don't know, but that's he, he, that is a bit of humour in that scene because of the look in his face yes. after everybody's dispatched. <laughs> yes. And he's like, I'm going to be next. And instead they say... Do you want, want a job? job? <laughs> and he's like, you can see the relief, isn't he? He's kind of like... And I tell you, the other bit where he is absolutely superb is a brilliant bit of background acting is the restaurant scene. Oh, yes. Where, yes. obviously, a, you know, a, a drunk Tony is is mouthing off to all of these you know rich people yeah. and and his kind of reaction to it, he doesn't know where to look. He's, he's uncomfortable. He's like, shit, you know, my boss is making a real dick of himself here. But I, I think he's really good. Yeah, he's fantastic, yeah. Is that, is that Nick the pig? Is that no, the, it's, she it's, says... it's Angel Salazar, the, the, the bodyguard. He's right. he's in Carlito's way as well. He's a he's a De Palma guy. Right. The director of photography was Chinatown's John Alonso, one of my favorite favorite cinematographers. Shot many of my favorite films, including Star Trek Generations, which is the most beautiful of all the Star Trek films. He only spoke Spanish to Pacino on set to help him maintain his accent and to keep the twinges of his American accent at bay and Alonso said that the Babylon Club gave him headaches as you would imagine it would because yeah. there were mirrors everywhere how the, how did they film that without the camera being reflected those mirrors must have been perfectly angled oh, yes. to hide that yeah. camera well, and because De Palma moves the camera a lot yeah, yeah he does yeah. Yeah. so yeah. it's not just a matter of just moving yeah. it slightly to, he's going to move that camera yeah. Well, talking of moving cameras, they moved the entire production from Miami to Los Angeles after complaints from the Cuban community as to how they were being represented. They shot the internment camp under a freeway overpass to hide the fact that they were no longer shooting in Miami. 
Yeah, in LA. Yeah, because yeah. he was in LA, and obviously the LA skyline would have been in the background. That would have yeah. been a dead giveaway. Now, you talked earlier about the real-life research done by Stone in, in, in relation to people living this lifestyle and some of the horrible things that happen. Let's talk about the infamous chainsaw shower scene. <laughs> now, when that DVD they referred to Leighton came out in... Uh, Probably the early 2000s. 2001, I, I think it was. Two- yeah, and I think you've got the same copy as I. It was a universal DVD, and it's got... Hasn't it got, like, some... It's not a sticker, but it looks like a sticker on the on the cover, like a kind of logo that says uncut version. Yeah, yeah, it has, yeah. yeah. I'm not going to say shocked me, but surprised me, I think, was the fact that we don't see half as much as we think we do. We don't see any cuts. We don't no, you don't see, any, see, the, you don't see, don't don't see, see chain, the, the teeth of a chainsaw no, cutting into it, it's flesh. It's very reminiscent of Reservoir Dogs in that respect. Yeah, yeah, everybody exactly. said, yeah. I saw the policeman's yeah. ear being cut off, yeah. but we don't see any of it. Now, it was apparently based on a real event that Stone had heard about when he was doing research with these various law enforcement agencies, as you said, Steve. De Palma wanted to establish a level of violence that hadn't been seen before, like these really terrible ways of killing, which I think he did perfectly. Mm. And the actual cutting of Angel, yeah, it's never shown. Yes, we see the blood spraying, but the Palmer always cuts away from the actual saw cutting into Tony's friend. He cuts to Tony's reaction, which you you think of like the gun pushing into his cheek, making him look at his friend being cut up with a chainsaw. I think that's in many ways more effective, isn't it? Yeah, and it's grim, isn't it, that sequence? It is grim. And it's that thing of, there's no way they could have filmed that with practical effects without just knowing that it yeah. was yeah. it was fake. Yeah. And by not showing us that chainsaw cutting into into his friend, isn't it? Isn't his name Angel? Yeah, something like that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It leaves it to our imagination, which I always think is the... Yeah, and the, it relies on the close-ups of, you know, yeah. uh, of Al Pacino, of, and, of uh, Angel, of everybody. But look, P- Pacino's performance in this scene, the luck he gives. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it, oh. He's chained up, isn't he, if I remember correctly? Angel is, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. His kind of arms yeah. are, are kind of chained above his head to like the, I would imagine, the, the shower. Or the, yeah, the, the, the shower. Yeah. 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 Do you know the one thing about this scene that's always made me giggle slightly is they're on quite a busy road. There are yeah. people sat outside because the weather's nice. Yeah. You'd think they'd hear a chainsaw going somewhere, wouldn't they? <laughs> I, mean, I know it's, I know it's, it's like an um, elderly community, isn't it, where, the, where people go to retire. And, you know, there's a certain age bracket there. But some, surely somebody would have heard a chainsaw going, you know, at the side unless of the road. Unless they get used it? to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unless they used to it, yeah. I do think the shot, it's actually framed with uh, Stephen Bauer in the car waiting and flirting outrageously with, the, you know, the bikini-clad uh, ladies walking past and whatnot, yeah. and the way it transitions from the car up into the windows. Now it's it's the one thing you can say for Brian De Palma is the, the shots he sets up are absolutely superb. Oh yeah, because oh, yeah. there's many a shot in this film, and, and like you say, with the camera, it never never really stays still for a long time. It's always no. doing something. Does that reflect the you know the the cocaine usage or the drug usage or no? It's it 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 all melds brilliantly. And it is it is quite shocking. It is shocking because other than say chainsaw massacre, it's the first time you've seen a prop an execution, isn't it? Or, or, or alluded to an execution using a chainsaw in a film. But yeah, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when Franklin's being cut up in the wheelchair, you never see the the, the chainsaw. No, kind of. You can see Franklin. We're looking at Franklin from behind, and Leatherface is stood in front of him. They're not going to show that. That that would be too extreme. And yes, it has been shown in films. Although in that film we'd actually do see a chainsaw cutting someone mm. when Leatherface drops the blade on his yeah. leg at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But I think it's really audacious for, and this is De Palma completely. There you have this um, torture scene, and then he cuts, and it's a slow pan yeah. down to the car. Yeah. He takes his time, yeah. he slows everything down, so we we got to digest it, we got to think, while we are taking our time to come in here, what yeah. is happening up there? I, I think this is one of the most incredible scenes of tension and violence I've ever seen in a film. And like you say, I, I think the film as a whole is superbly shot. The camera moves, the setups, and this is one of the best examples. And it is easy to draw parallels between this scene and the one in Hitchcock's Cycle, where we imagine we've seen more gore and violence mm. than we actually have. And of course, De Palma is an unashamed fan of Hitchcock. Yeah. If it wasn't for Hitchcock, would we have Brian De Palma? I'm surprised Hitchcock has taken this long to pop up in this episode with De Palma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he tends to more come up when you when you're talking about films like Dress to Kill. Yeah, Obsession. Obsession. Yeah. Body and Double, isn't it? Yeah. Body Double, yeah. like the those kind of more traditional thrillers. Uh, Snake Eyes. Like Femme Fatales, and th- this is never a sort of film that Hitchcock. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. Did he ever do any outright crime dramas or gangster films? Nothing Not certainly gangster, like no. this. Did he? This is. Perhaps the closest one I can think of for Hitchcock would be maybe Frenzy. Yeah, but yeah, like even then, this is yeah, yeah. this is a different beast altogether. It is. Whilst we're on the subject of violence, as you said, this film had two hundred and seven f bombs, and you know the, the, the use of language in it is pretty spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a Michelle Pfeiffer. Can you just stop saying fuck? <laughs> <laughs> The film even acknowledges how much bad language is in it, which is great. But oh. that's, that's, that's purposeful, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, oh. it's, it's always levelled against people, you know, who aren't very articulate, that um, they swear to mask, the, you know, their lack of intelligence and things like that. Don't forget, he's a, he's a Cuban immigrant at the end of the day, so English isn't his first language, is it? So yeah. he is going to re- resort then, for want of a better word, to crude, crude, the, the crude, more base level yeah, of communication, yeah, crude, yeah. crude levels yeah. of communication, because it's yeah. more effective and it's a more it's a, it's a better shock reaction then, and perhaps that's why he does swear as much as he does. It's got pretty spectacular levels of swearing in fairness. Does that lend into something that I'm going to call the beginning of shouty Al Pacino because he loves a bold statement, he loves having a, a grand monologue. And peppered with swearing, so is this the first example of shout the owl? No, I would say like in um, Dog Day Afternoon. There's some oh, there. good God! You yeah, know, dog, Annika, Annika. Yeah, oh, but that, dog, dog Day Afternoon is yeah, that's that's manic Al Pacino, yes, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, but I'm talking about you know grand gesture, loud Al Pacino, which would reach its zenith with you know in heat, in heat, absolutely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hundred percent. Yeah, but is this is this the the birth of shouty Al in that respect? Then I, I don't know because, like Steve just said, Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. For me, that's he he, does, he doesn't do in the Godfather films. Yes, he does shout. He has these outbursts, certainly against Kay, doesn't he? When in the second film, when he, he slaps her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I I I I'm talking like in a. I, I know what you mean, and yeah, in a more constant... he doesn't do in the Godfather, no. but he certainly does in this film. And it, in Dog Day Afternoon, it's, it's reacting to the press being there, isn't it? Because otherwise, he's quite True, yeah. he's quite quiet, isn't he? When he's in the bank, you know, and he's quite measured. But you know, this is this is what's the bit in the when he's fumbling with the gun? <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love that. That's one of my favourite ever pieces of Alpertino performance in Dog Day Afternoon. Nice oh, genius. That's uh, brutal. But yeah, oh, I, I, great I, film. I, I, could, I think we could argue that this is probably the Alpertino that that starts becoming the, the devil's advocate um, Vincent Hanna you know and everything thereafter a scent of a woman even as well you know yeah 
Do, do you know I think they're right? If you, if you look at The Godfather more as an ensemble piece, right? You've got mm. James Caan, who's awesome. You've got Marlon Brando, obviously. I think there's a good argument that Scarface might be the pinnacle, iconic Al Pacino performance. I, it's certainly the one that's most mimicked, isn't it? Yeah. Because according, according to De Palma, Bruce Willis, Tom Cruise, Alec Baldwin, and countless other actors he's met over the years all do a great impersonation of Tony Montana. And, you know, he's become a legendary character, hasn't he? Riffed and homaged so many times. How many references to Scarface have you had in The Simpsons alone? Well, it, it, it got attached to rap culture quite heavily, didn't it? Yeah, hugely. Uh, yeah, the, oh, yeah, the, yeah the, the rap community massively in the 90s yeah. and early 2000s embraced Scarface as kind of like... Yeah, as, as an ideal lifestyle almost, isn't it, you know? Yeah, God, yeah. Yeah, but it, it, it sort of attached itself to that, didn't it? Because it, came, it tended to become more and more prevalent during that time. Yeah, but... we all need somebody to look up to. <laughs> <laughs> Why not Tony Montana? Yeah. yeah. No, Scarface is a film all about greed and excess, and it is in many ways as you said earlier, Steve, a film that typified the 80s. Because Tony Montana is like the street-level Gordon Gecko, isn't he? And we see his rise to power, and then his stagnation, and then his fall. You're all a bunch of fucking assholes. You know why? You don't have the guts to be what you want to be. You need people like me. You need people like me so you can point your fucking fingers and say, that's the bad guy. So, what I make you? Good? You're not good. You just know how to hide, how to lie. Me, I don't have that problem. Me, I always tell the truth, even when I lie. So say good night to the bad guy. Come on. The last time you're gonna see a bad guy like this again, let me tell you. Come on. Big way for the bad guy. There's a bad guy coming through. Better get out of his way. And I think that scene in the restaurant is where he's certainly on the bottom half, isn't he? Of his, uh, he's he's peaked way before this and now this is him just what's left isn't it that's all he, all he does is sit around eating doing cocaine drinking yeah. smoking well yeah. this is not there's not a lot of um, character arc with this character because he yeah. starts off he's a mean son of a bitch and he ends up as a mean son of a bitch yeah. he just gets more of it he just gets you know yeah. as that uh, little statue he's got in his house at the end you know uh, the world is yours yeah and that scene but where he's looking up at the blimp yeah, oh, exactly. It is. That's just magnificent. But yeah, that moment in the restaurant is the moment that we see the cracks yeah. breaking up. You know, he's got everything. He's got the woman he wants. He's got the lifestyle he yeah. wants. He's got the money. He's got the house. He's got everything. Mm. What's next? There isn't any. He's brilliantly belligerent, isn't he? In the <laughs> because 
he's clearly totally and utterly wasted, isn't it? But you know, guys, the thing, right, that ultimately causes his his downfall is is not a bad thing. It's his it's his humanity because when he refuses to kill that diplomat or, or yeah, whatever yeah. he is, and his wife and his, and his wife and, and, and child, child. Mm-hmm. and and he turns on Sosa and refuses to do it, and he kills Sosa's man, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. He said no, you know, he said no women and no 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 kids. That is the bit that causes ultimately his, his immediate downfall, isn't it? Yeah. Definitely. And if it wasn't for the fact that Sosa's men come and ambush him and, and you have that incredible shootout at the end, he probably wasn't long for this world anyway, was he? No, no. But it's that bit of it's that bit of humanity, actually, that does cause his downfall because in a world that they live in, this cutthroat world of, of dog-eat-dog and ruthlessness where you know the stronger survive, him showing humanity and, and like, like that is just... It could be the only piece of humanity, really, that he shows in the whole film. Yeah, he kills his best friend. Yeah. When yeah. he finds out that... He is with his sister. And That's a great piece of editing, that is. Yeah. When he sees her up at the top coming oh, out. Yeah. Motion. Motion. Oh, yeah. 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 And the music. Let's yeah. talk about Georgia Moroda's soundtrack. It's because... fucking awful. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's 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 awful if you don't like 80s synth scores, I lo- isn't it? I, I, I love 80s synth music. I really genuinely do, right? But I, I bracket this with the Lady Hawk soundtrack. They're fucking awful. And I love the music of Georgia Moroder, right? I mean, I Feel Love with Donna Summer is one of the most perfect singles ever released. But this is just, ah, oh, the choice is made. It's bad. It's not good. So are you not a fan then of Paul Engerman's Push It to the Limit? Way to start. Oh, my God. It's a fucking masterpiece. Now, li- right, li- I'm not being funny, but that's, that's a Frank Stallone-level song. I'm sorry, it is. Well, hang on now. Right, careful, because if you're going to go into Rocky territory, right, we're all fans of Rocky, and we all love a good montage scene. And there is there are a few better montage scenes than the one in Scarface with that song. <laughs> Come on. It's terrible. It is out... What do you mean, with a cheesy tiger and them all walking out of the Tony's yeah. mansion, all kind of like... Straight up into the camera. Yeah, into the camera, doing catalogue poses. <laughs> oh, it's... Come so on. It is what it is meant to be. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah. I I don't think there's any kind of, um, what the fuck was the Palmer thinking? Because I think he knew exactly what he was doing. He was showing this excessive 80s lifestyle. And there was no more decadent, money-driven decade, I think, than the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think he was aware of that. And he he can see the humour in it. And, you know, for all the operatic violence of this film, there's so much humour in it, if you've got quite a dark sense of humour. And that scene, I think, is perfect. Yeah. And, and speaking speaking of, uh, you know, excess and violence, let's talk about that final shootout. Just so before we get there, can we talk about the assassination attempt on Tony in the world's weirdest nightclub? With that, <laughs> with that stand, mascot. With that, that stand-up routine. And then we've got the, the weird mask dance thing, whatever that is. And the nightclub where they keep all of the lights on rather than use the disco lights, they've got, they've got <laughs> overhead lights on. Yeah. I mean, what the actual the fuck is going on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a brilliant sequence, don't get me wrong, right? Because it's just so out there and yeah. it's De Palma leaning into the era, as you quite rightly said. But it's so weird when you step back and you think, what the actual hell? Is going on yeah. in this scene. I know. Yeah, we can give him that. We'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
so he right he survives that and then after then he kills Manny and then he takes his you know legitimately and understandably hysterical sister back to his uh, his castle as you want to call it <laughs> then things really go pear-shaped and Sosa's men like ninjas don't they kind of enter the <laughs> compound yeah you want to follow me okay you want to play games? Okay. How can I win? Come on. Okay. Do you want to play with? Okay. Oh, no. Say hello to my little friend. Do you want to play with? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you like that? Huh? Do you want Head of the MPAA at the time took issue with the level of violence and language in the film. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> and, and gave it an X rating. De Palma then submitted two further cuts of the film, but he refused to do any more after it kept getting X ratings. Bregman and De Palma went to arbitration on the matter, and Bregman brought in experts to put forward a case that Scarface should get an R rating. What did De Palma end up doing? He put out his original cut without without any changes. There is no uncut version. That's right. Such. That's the thing. That is it. There may have been versions on home video, and certainly for television, it would have been cut to pieces. Yes. Mm-hmm. But in terms of any cinema that was ever screened in Scarface, would have only screened the version that you can get today, which is the uncut version, and is the only version. It is the director's cut. 
even though the film was on multiple occasions submitted to the MPAA for a rating. I, I, I do like the build-up when because he's an early pioneer of CCTV throughout his house, isn't he? Yes. And during all of this, his sister confronts him, doesn't she? With all this yes. all this chaos ongoing, and his sister, yeah. you know, pulls a gun ultimately on him. There's a man literally sat in his blackened office, and I mean blackened walls, ceiling, furniture, with a mound. Well, it's like the Mount Everest of cocaine in front of me. In front of I think it's neck. the single biggest amount of, of cocaine that we've seen in any film. I mean... And he just puts his head into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but then if you think right, guys, obviously you need that amount, that you know, that much in order to get him through what he's about to endure when he's getting shot multiple times by automatic gunfire. He's basically sucking the bullets up and saying, "Come on, come on!" He's still standing. Yeah, he's still standing. Yeah, it's crazy, and it's, 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 it is crazy. It's, it's a brilliant. But then I think by that point, this film being all about excess. Yeah. This this is it, isn't it? This is the peak of it. And yeah. if you're along for the ride, at this point now, you're just, you know. Yeah. I know it actually makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then that one guy creeps up from it, you know, from behind and un- unloads a-, a shotgun into him and he yeah. falls into the pool. Yeah. And there's so much blood when he lands in the pool. Yeah. It is, yeah. It, 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 yeah. It, You'd expect the blood to be white. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's um it's a brilliant um and it's brilliantly staged in fairness to him, isn't it? Yeah. With all the creeping in and it pretty much shows every angle of which these guys are infiltrating this this yeah. this mini fortress, isn't it? But like the the, the, the shot of Tony in in the um pond, the in-house pond, shall we say then. The shot of him, it's it's <laughs> it sums this film up. It's not subtle in any way, is it, let's be honest. I don't think there's anything subtle about Scarface and that's no that used to be one of the things that I held against it and now it's one of the things that I just love about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know whether you, you guys have played um, the, the Grand Theft Auto that was set in the 80s. That was... Uh, no, the only Grand Theft Auto game I've played is Grand Theft Auto 5. Oh, right. the, the, uh, Vice City was hugely yeah. influenced by Scarface with its, you know, its plot line and everything is very, very similar, but it, it's all neon lit and, you know, and it's plinky-plonky uh, soundtrack to it. It, it. Scarface's influence overall, put it this way, no Scarface, I doubt whether you get Goodfellas the way it's made. Yeah. Boogie Nights. Yeah. Hugely influenced. Yeah. And like I said, Blow, there's yeah, that Blow, bit where he yeah. meets uh, Escobar and it's very much like... There's, there's a lot of films probably, uh, unwittingly perhaps, influenced by Scarface because yeah. where is the Godfather set of gangster films going forward? Scarface, with its excess, probably showed how to do this story in a particular way. Whether or not you actually like it or agree with it, you know, is open to your own personal interpretation. But it's set up the rise and the fall repeatedly for films to come in its future, isn't it? I agree. Yeah. That's a yeah, that's a brilliant way of summing up Scarface really and and, and its influence. And I think that uh, you know when uh, Miami Vice came out well, a year or two later, we wouldn't have had Michael Mann today if it wasn't for Scarface. Yeah. No. Think. No, I agree. Yeah. What year was Thief? Eighty 80- Eighty one. Thief was eighty one. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So Miami Vice was eighty four. Eighty three. Yes. Eighty four. I mean, yeah, it was about a year or so later. Yeah. Miami Vice, the TV series, started in eighty four. Right. It ran from nineteen eighty four to nineteen eighty nine. Did it run as long as that? Yeah, five years. Yeah. Wow. So let's move on then to the second film we're going to be discussing in tonight's double bill, nineteen ninety three's Carlito's Way. 
okay? Come on in here, motherfuckers! Come on, I'm waiting for you! Why, you ain't coming in? Okay, I'm coming out! Are you up against me now, motherfuckers? I'm gonna blow your fucking brains out! You think you're big time? You're gonna fucking die! Big time! So, based on two novels by criminal judge Edwin Torres called Carlito's Way and After Hours, Carlito's Way, the book, covered the life of the younger Carlito Brigante, and After Hours was the older man after a stint in prison. Buccino came to Martin Bregman, who had produced Scarface, with the screenplay asking him to read it. Bregman thought it was terrible, but Pacino loved the character, so Bregman gave the writing duties to David Kep for him to turn into a workable script. Now, the Palmer was reluctant to do another gangster film in the same vein as Scarface, but he loved the script and liked Torres, who took him around Spanish Harlem, showing him the neighbourhood and telling him about the real-life stories that he'd weaved into the books. Cap decided to use a voiceover, as this was Carlito recounting his last days in, in the moments that he was dying. Spoiler alert. And the name Brigante is a Corsican name, and the character is a composite of real people that Judge Edwin Torres grew up with. So, gents, Carlito's Way. Uh, when did you first see this? I saw it in the cinema oh, when it first came awesome. out. Awesome. It was it was released in January 94 over here. Mm-hmm. So I would have seen it in London because that's where I was living at the time. Probably in the tiny little canon around the corner from where I lived. So it's not one of the big uh, cinemas. So you saw it on the big screen. But yes, I did, yeah. Oh, so lucky. Leighton? A uh, huge fan. Didn't see it when it came out in the cinema. Waited for it on video. I think I went out and bought it as soon as it came out and absolutely loved it. Mainstay of my digital collection as well. I was a huge fan of The Untouchables. So a new De Palma coming out. I always kept an eye on the films coming out. But this, with the retaming of Pacino, it was like, um, I saw a trailer as well. It was, it really, really piqued my interest. So I was um, hugely looking forward to it. And the reviews were really, really positive as well. I remember reading quite a few of them. And when I actually did see it, I was floored by it. I thought it was terrific. Yeah, I, I'd seen the trailer. I I was a huge fan of The Untouchables. Uh, like I say, a, not so much a fan of Scarface at the time. Mm. Um, but on this sort of obsessive dive into gangster films and crime films, when I saw Carlito's Way, I think I was kind of, you know, that sort of thing was crested in me. And it absolutely, like you say, like, it knocked me off my feet. I, I, I think another part of the attraction towards it, other than... De Palma and Pacino. I went through a phase of being a huge Sean Penn fan. I'd, wa- I'd watch as many of his films as I could because he was the kind of actor that I wanted to watch on screen. And just before this came out, he was in a film that a, a very, very, very good friend of mine introduced me to called State of Grace. Have you ever seen it? With Gary Oldman and Ed Harris and Robin Wright. No. That's directed by... Phil Joanno. Yes, who did Rattle and Hum. He did the U2 movie, yeah. And ah, he's, he's done right. a couple of other films since. When my my friend recommended him, he, he wouldn't shut up about it. 
and he's saying, you've got to watch it. It's really, really good. And to be honest with you, I've not seen it for the best part of easily 20 years. I don't know even know if you can get it on DVD or Blu-ray. It came out 1990, 91, and I think it came out just before Reservoir Dogs and the ending of State of Grace. I think you could argue owes, owes a lot towards Reservoir Dogs. I think Mr. Tarantino is not shy in admitting that he pilfers a lot from other films. Yeah. Um, and it, there's a lot of similarities. But Sean Penn is magnetic in that film. He's he's the main character in it, alongside a truly brilliant Gary Oldman, who just plays this New York fuck-up, and he's fantastic. So when Sean Penn was like the second billion behind Pacino with his name on the poster, I was really into it. And let's make no bones about it, Sky, and Steve, you're already aware of this, but this is Sean Penn's best film by a country mile, as far as I am concerned. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I think there's, there's a lot of arguments that he's he, he's been great in, in a lot of films. Yeah. But, yeah, for me, as as David Kleinfeld, yeah, th- this is my favourite Sean Penn role. Definitely. Yeah, I think this is, yeah, it could be his best. I'm yeah. trying to think of some of the others, no one, but yes. Yeah. It's the one that comes to mind. Yeah, I mean, you can you can look at the Oscar wins and individually they're terrific performances, okay? Yeah. But I think if you look throughout Sean Penn's career, I think for a lot of people, it'd be Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He's fantastic in taps as well. Do, do you know what this is for Sean Penn? Go on. This is for Sean Penn, what, what Val Kilmer and Tombstone is for him. Yeah. Oh, what what an analogy. That is, that's the that's, yeah. As we all know, Leighton and Steve, Heat is Val Kilmer's best film. It's everyone that's in that film's best film. <laughs> but Val Kilmer has never been better than when he played Doc Holliday in Tombstone. And I think that is the same sort of... That's that's where Sean Penn is in this film. Sean Penn was an actor that, other than when he had his marriage to Madonna and he became a public enemy number one in a lot of, in a lot of people's eyes, didn't he? But his choices are, have always been pretty good choices that he's made throughout his career. And the, the, the casting of him as Davy Kleinfeld, because this, the route that Davy Kleinfeld ultimately goes down, you still like the guy because Sean Penn plays you? him superbly. Yeah, I I see him. He's, he's still kind of like a, a likable guy until the very end when there's the re, the reveal of the tape, isn't it? That he's been he's going to set them. I, I think he's a total he's, fucking scumbag yeah. all the way through this. I, 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 but I still find him likable. I know he's a total scumbag. Or is it? Or is it just one of those magnetic performances? It could very well be. Yeah. Because because this this scumbag lawyer Kleinfeld that he plays was based on several real life lawyers that Judge Edwin Torres knew three in particular who ended up getting killed, and I love what Sean Penn did with his look where he shaved his head back from his <laughs> hair like moving his hairline all the way back. He did, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, that's another aspect of this performance that stands out, is the look of him. Yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, a lot of performers you think of some uh, affectation or perhaps something they wear and everything, but for him, yeah. it's his hair, yeah. that curly mop that's <laughs> on top of him. And, and the fact that he's constantly coked up. Yeah. yeah. And and it's the, twitching, the, the, the twitchiness of him, isn't it? And yeah. he sells paranoia fantastically. 100%, yeah. yeah. He really does. I have to do this. I'm asking for your help. Dave, you a lawyer, man. What the fuck is happening to you? I don't know. I don't know. I'm so fucking shook up. I cannot see straight. 
I'm in an impossible fucking situation here. Once I get Tony on shore, there's a distinct possibility that he and his Goomba son have got some plans for me. What do you mean plans? What kind of plans? What kind of plans? I don't know if he's not going to kill me. This guy hates my guts. I'm in trouble. I mean, I'm in fucking trouble here. You are the only fucking person on earth that I can trust. The scene where Kleinfeld talks to him at the at the uh, house during the party, and he's saying about the boat thing, because oh. that 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 is room. <laughs> yeah, get him, get a fucking room. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's the scene where they did it thirty takes of it, and De Palma said no more. And uh, Sean Penn wanted to do more. And they argued with it big time on the set. And then when they were going back to the hotel later, they would still argue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sean Penn is, is next level in this film. He really is. Oh, he's, yeah. And that um, courtroom at the beginning, that was Torres' actual courtroom. Right, that was Edwin Torres' oh, courtroom. Yes, yeah, wow. Yeah. I, I love the way the judge dismisses um, after summing up and saying, uh, you know, Mr. Bagrande is a, is a ruthless assassin and convicted peddler of narcotics. He goes, never, never convicted. And the judge just dismisses him with his backhand just to say, just yeah. get out, just get out of my corner. I absolutely <laughs> love that sequence. It's tremendous. Now, we talked in Scarface about the great female lead, Michelle Pfeiffer, and also Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio's performance, which was also superb. But guys, i got to say, for a totally different load of reasons, I just love Penelope Ann Miller as Gail in this film. She's sexy, but she's also got an innocence about her. Yeah, she's perfect. She Throughout the film, you don't believe that she's part of that world whatsoever. Yeah. She's completely separate from that world. Now, let me just give our listeners um, a little bit of the behind-the-scenes insight into how <laughs> the kind of prep for these episodes goes. I, I couldn't get to sleep last night, and I was thinking about some of the stuff we were going to talk about in this episode, and I thought about how the, the one scene for me that sums up Penelope Ann Miller and Al Pacino's performance in this film. When they obviously reunite, and obviously he's just done... How many years in prison was it? Five years? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and they reunite with each other, and they are trying to kind of establish this relationship now when this time has passed. And he thinks that she's like this successful ballet dancer, is she? Yeah, Yeah, on Broadway or something. Or Broadway dancer, right. But he finds out that she is dancing in strip clubs. And the scene where he goes to the club... And he sees her, she sees him, and there's an initial look of shock and horror from her. But in their little sit-down chat afterwards, the way that they both play that is the fact that she's like, no, no, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing, and I'm not going to show any degree of shame to him, nor am I going to accept from him any sort of judgment about what I do. And the way that she conveys that in her performance, I think, is just absolutely superb and I think she's a brilliant and really underrated actress, and I just think she is the perfect bit of casting in this film. She's she's the shining light, isn't it, throughout the film? Hundred percent. Yeah. She's the moral centre. Yeah. She's she's in control of, her, of herself, isn't it? You know, she's not ashamed of what she does. She doesn't shy away from what she does, and yeah. it's that's quite a progressive attitude that she might to have at the time the film is set, isn't it? It's that rooftop scene. Oh, when he's holding the, the rooftop scene where he's holding the, the dustbin the lid. Dustbin lid, yeah. Yeah, and you see it in, oh, in that dance desire. video. She looks yes. flawless. She looks like she looks like a porcelain doll almost, doesn't she? Yeah, that's right. And and there's the the, the voiceover that he gives, isn't it? When you're in the joint, 
You spend all your time doping out who you're gonna see the first day you're out, the second day, the third. But then you get out, everybody's got a different face than you remember. Maybe you do too. You pray for one face that didn't change. One face that still knows you. Looks at you the same way it always did. She is um, the the dream that he has. You know, he's dreaming to try and get out. He needs a yeah. 75 mm-hmm. grand right. to buy his car lot in the Bahamas. But it's also her. And the very first shot of the well, one of the first shots of the film is the poster of them dancing on yeah. the beach. And when I first saw that, I was thinking of Scarface because it's garish, it's bright. Yeah. And then it pulls away and it's, it's nothing like that the rest no, of the film. Right. It's very yeah. reminiscent but, of that portrait in the Mercedes office, isn't it? No, the, the big mural that's behind. Yes. It's very similar, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Holy shit. It is. Yeah, in um, Frank Lopez's yeah. office. Yes, very similar. Jeez, it is. See, again, more connective tissue between these two films. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Lovely little bit of uh, a little cameo in the film. Viggo Mortensen playing Laleen, an old associate of uh, Carlito, who James, James Redbone's character. You, uh, you, you mean the Harry Eulis, um uh, What's his face? Oh. Harris Eulin of this yes, film. Yes, the Harris Eulin but, of this film. <laughs> but but no, no, in the uh, well, he's not even correct, really. No, is he? he's no, just but... Viggo Mortensen as as this uh, wheelchair-bound guy who can no longer walk. Because I think didn't he take a bullet in the spine? Yeah, and he's got he's yeah. got the, one of the best lines in the film. I can't walk. I can't harm. I wear fucking diapers, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's class. And this is Vigo before Vigo starts coming in. G.I. Jane and a couple of the supporting roles. You know, the consistent character actor. This is Vigo's. Yeah. This might be Vigo's step up even to get yeah. in those roles. But he's terrific because there's a there's a really good flashback with, with, in, with him just before. Because he's mentioned, isn't it, that he's doing life for, uh, mm-hmm. for what, what, what have you. And there's that flashback just before Carlito goes into the office to have the conversation with him, isn't there? Yeah, and yeah, but back in the day, before Carlito went away, he yeah. was like this kind of... Um, but he, he was like the, the good-looking one of, of the group, wasn't he? Yeah. Like the ladies' man. And then, obviously, now he finds himself in a, in a bit of a bad way to the point that he's going into Carlito's uh, office wearing a wire. Yeah. Another bit of incredible casting. Kind of, really, the, the main antagonist of the film is John Leguizamo as Benny Blanco from the Bronx. He's this cocky, arrogant, threatening, and then kind of um, fearless kind of younger version of Carlito because Carlito hates him because he reminds him of what he used to be like yeah there's so many films uh, going back you know I was thinking of uh, the gunfighter with Gregory Peck in which you've got this old gunfighter he's jaded now he's he survived and he knows that there's somebody always going to be there yeah. to shoot him in the back yeah. and then that person will become him yeah and this is um, yeah. Benny Blanco from the Bronx but he turned the um, John Lucas turned the role down four times but they really, really wanted him for this role. Yeah. And he said yes because they allowed him to do a lot of improvisation. Improvisation, yeah. yes. Because there's, there's that scene, isn't he, when he first meets Carlito and he's kind of like in awe of him. But then there's that bit later on then when he Carlito is constantly just swatting him off. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. get away, who the fuck are you? You know, kind of thing. Hey, Mr. Gigante, it's the second time you turn me down for a drink, man. Well, you don't like my champagne? Hey, it could be. I don't know, maybe there's a misfucking understanding here. I don't know, man. Maybe you don't remember me. My name is maybe Benny Maybe I Blanco. don't give a shit. Maybe I don't remember the last time I blew my nose either. Who the fuck are you? I should remember you. Huh? What, you think you like me? 
You ain't like me, motherfucker. You a punk. I've been with made people, connected people. Who you been with? Chain snatching, jive ass, modicum motherfuckers. <laughs> Why don't you get lost? Go ahead, snatch your purse. Come on, take a fucking walk. No, I think the only problem here is that Steffi doesn't know where she belongs. Come on, Steffi, let's go. Steffi belongs here. That's where she belongs. I think Steffi's making a big fucking mistake. Hey, 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 If I ever see you here again, you die just like that. Are you over, man? You fucking in the history books. That's what you are, man. So you might as well fucking kill me now, because if I ever see you again, I swear to God, I'm going to fucking kill you. Get him out. Take him out the back. Take him in the alley. Dumb move, man. Dumb move. But it's like them old reflexes coming back. Just before Carlito knocks him down the steps where he fronts up to him, he says, I see you again. I'm going to fucking kill you. Yeah. And and Benny Blanco's not, you know, phased by this at all. He's like, no, no, that's it, man. You're dead. You're done. Yeah. And If I a, see you again, yeah, you're dead. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the big turning point, isn't it? Yeah. Because Carlito now wants to put this his old ways behind him. Obviously, letting this guy live is like it's what totally different sort of film, but it's what Tom Hanks's character does in Saving Private Ryan. He lets that German officer go, uh, soldier go, and then yeah. later on, that's the one that ends up killing him. Yeah. You know, it's a thing that's going to come back and bite you on the ass and you should have just gone with those old instincts, but he can't because he's a different man now and he doesn't want to do that yeah. sort of thing. And if he does that one thing, then he's going to give up his whole kind of changed way of life, isn't he? Yeah, and that's what the voiceover says. You know, he's actually yeah. done it, man. I should have killed him. Yeah. 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 So, Carlito, going back to earlier in the film, he gets out of prison after this five-year stint and his lawyer, his scumbag lawyer, David Kleinfeld, gets him off on a, a technicality. And then he goes back into the old neighbourhood and he meets up with his cousin, doesn't he? His younger cousin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he says, oh, Carlito, man, you know, uh, can, you, can, can you do me a favour, man? Can you come help me? And he's got that line, he says, favour going to kill you faster than a bullet. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That opening scene where we see them uh, walking through the streets with everybody yeah. there, that's very reminiscent, I think, of the opening of Scarface in the uh, internment camp. Yeah. It's almost identical. Yeah. The camera's slowly coming down yeah. and seeing everybody mingling. So let's talk about that pool hall scene. The thing that strikes me about that scene is, is a pool hall, right? Yeah. It's not the most complex of locations, but it's the way the geography of the scene is set up where or everything and where everyone is placed and where Carlito is and where his cousin is and where the guy is behind the bar and there's that, that like kind of open crack to that door that leads to yeah. a kitchen or whatever all works to build in 
tension that's something that the Palmer is just so good at yeah and slowing things down the slow camera yeah. like he doesn't he doesn't go fast to try and no. he slows everything down to build it all up mm. uh, and he's quite obvious as well he's pointing at it this is what is going to happen yeah yeah and it's, it's a setup of that trick shot yeah. yeah and it's the use of those mirrored shades on that guy yeah. yes. it's, 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 like, it's brilliant isn't it and you can see Pacino working out the mass of what is happening around him isn't it yeah. I, leading up to the, the suggestion of, hey, you guys, you want to see, uh, you want to see a trick? He goes, oh, I'm going to show you. Um, he's going to show you a pool trick. He goes, no, this is magic, and yeah. it's that setup. And Carlito's constantly looking around the room, isn't he? I'm going to put yeah. this guy here. I'm keeping my eye on, my, on that guy there. I'm looking at the door there because something isn't right. And mm. as soon as that gesture is made, it's it's brilliant and the tense. It's really really tense. Yeah. And what a performance by Pacino as well, because he was on crutches at the time. Because it was one of the first scenes they filmed of the, in the film. They were going to do the finale for this, but then he turned up in crutches, so they had to do the pole pole yeah. scene. And you wouldn't have guessed that. No, 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 no not at all, not at all. Yeah, the, you know, the, the whole setup and, and you know the way that scene is executed is just brilliant. And talking about great shots, that brilliant tracking one shot in the nightclub El, El Paraiso. Which, incidentally, is the name of the food that Tony Montana eats. In Scarface. Do, do, do you think that the nightclub is a pretty similar setup to the one in Scarface as, as another throwback? Albeit it didn't. Yes, it is, yeah. And, and that, that tracking shot, what was this? This is 93. We, we've, we've seen you know, one ease like that before. We, Goodfellas being probably one of the, the best. And then we've seen them since because this shot is very reminiscent of what Paul Thomas Anderson did in that shot in Boogie Nights. Mm. Yeah, where we yeah. you know, we walk into a club and, and it's it's a, a, a kind of a single tracking shot. Still a great sequence. Yeah, absolutely. And then you meet uh, Sasso then, isn't it? Sasso, yeah. <laughs> People call me Ron. Yeah, as if Ron is even more exotic. <laughs> Brilliant. That that guy couldn't speak Brilliant. a word of English. No, no, that no that actor couldn't speak a word of English. Yeah. Oh, he was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> And going right, back so, to um, Benny Blanco quickly, it's, it's up there with the Benny Blanco from the Bronx. It's up there with Johnny Rose Beef, isn't it? It's like one of the best character names yeah, in best, the film. Yeah. It's class. Yeah. <laughs> right, going back to Kleinfeld. Now, Kleinfeld, he's kind of got himself into a bit of a predicament because uh, some time back, he has taken some possession of some money off a gangster and he's, well, pocketed it, basically, isn't he? That moment when... He confesses to Pacino, and he confesses by a giggle. I know, giggle. What yeah. a fucking yeah. Pre- yeah. I know. You say you like this guy. He is a. Come oh, on. I can't help what it. I can't help it. It's the bromance no. with Sean Penn. I'm afraid. It's just right. Fra- Frank Minucci, who played mob boss Tony Tagliolucci, he was the real deal. He was a made guy. Yeah. And I, I love the thing of um, when 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 Kleinfeld goes to visit him in Rikers Island, the prison badge. He's coughing, isn't he, into, into, into a handkerchief. He, he's clearly, you know, he's got like emphysema or something. He doesn't look like a guy that's in the best of health. No. But I just love the way that that acts. You, you listen to me, you liar. <laughs> and he's got this like, this gravelly voice, like as if he's he's smoked 100 cigarettes for the last 30 years, 100 cigarettes a day. And he's just, there is one little bit, one little bit where he seems to look at the camera. Have you noticed that? Does he? he does look <laughs> at the camera. Yeah. But I, I, but God. I, I love the way Penn as he's shot coming out of Rikers. And he spews. And he spews. But if you see him physically, he's haunted. It's frightened him. It's shocked him to his core, isn't yes. it? Yes. 
But he knows he knows now that he's his, his cards are marked. Yeah, and there's, there's only one option available to him now, isn't there? Yeah, and it's not the yeah. option that anybody should be taking. Because he doesn't. He says to Tony, he says there is. He, sorry, he says to um, Carlito, there is a distinct possibility that when I come, you know, I help this guy out, that him and his son are going to have me whacked. So that's why, obviously, he needs to get Carlito in on yeah. him you know, for this this kind yeah. of prison breakup. Yeah. And that, you know, that whole thing on the boat. Oh, it's superb, isn't it? It's, cle- it's, it's clearly superb. shot on a soundstage. Let's get it out there. Oh, 100%. So it was set, a shot in um, a shipyard. And oh, a lock, right. a lock it was. Yeah. It wasn't on a soundstage as such. It's like when he's, he's telling the sun, isn't it? Right. Just keep it pointed that way. Look, look that way. Just keep looking that way, isn't it? Don't look yeah. what's going on behind you. Keep looking that way. You've got to keep <laughs> yeah. the boat yeah. straight. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, and and it's all performance because all the way through, like I said, you know, when he confessed, he was giggling. He's giggling all the way through this yeah. as well. Yeah, you know, he, it's like a, almost like you know, I know he's coked up, but it's almost like a game to him. Yeah, uh, he, he he can't see that he's a very very small fish in a very big pond, isn't it? And he thinks it, but his actions are true almost, but he he, he just doesn't think he he thinks he's untouchable, doesn't he? And, yeah, and, and you know this is this is the plan of a of a of a, of a coked coked up idiot, really, isn't it? What did, did he did he think that Tagliacci's son is not going to tell other family members what he's going to do? Because obviously Kleinfeld hasn't accounted for the other brother. No, no, and he's got he's got a position of authority within society, isn't he? You know, successful yeah. uh, lawyer. He's he's a, he, f- he feels he's a little bit bulletproof, and he hasn't been brought down to earth quite. And you know, as a result, he thinks that he should be he should be doing what they are because he's been successful. He's got himself a bit of money behind him, but he wants to be wealthy further, doesn't he? Yeah. And it's just, and it's the classic, this is, this guy's going to fuck up spectacularly. And when it comes to that denouement, he really does fuck up. But I love his Adidas, I, I love his Adidas tracksuit. I've got to be honest. Oh, that tracksuit. It's, yeah. It's class. <laughs> <laughs> what you said earlier, that also goes back to the ballsiness that Kleinfeld shows in the nightclub where he pulls a, you know, fucking snub-nosed pistol on <laughs> Benny Blanco. Yes, yes, yeah. You know, what the fuck is he thinking? Uh, it's like, Ollie, this is, what are you, you, you going to bring a gun in here? Put that fucking thing away, man. <laughs> oh, you a gangster now. Yeah, yeah you a gangster now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yeah. brilliant, it's brilliant. Right, let's go back to the relationship between Carlito and Kleinfeld. One of the things that, I, I don't know, it, it seems like sort of movie logic, but would Carlito have really taken the risk of going to the hospital to have this face-to-face with Kleinfeld. Now, Pacino apparently had reservations about this and, and why he'd do it, but the scene does give Carlito a chance to have some payback, doesn't he, in terms of the story, by doing the, the bullet switcheroo, which obviously then leaves Kleinfeld vulnerable when Tagalucci's remaining son comes to see him, pulls a gun on him. Yeah. Kleinfeld pulls the gun from under the pillow. There's no bullets in it. Oh, and I love that more, that scene when the he scene of him just tosses. Yeah. yeah, in slow motion. What, what, what does he go? Yeah. He says, adios, Dave. And as he's dropping yeah. the bullets, it's brilliant. That's a great shot as well, in fairness. Oh, yeah, this this film is full of them. It really is. Yeah. Yeah, I love the, I know it's a cliche to say, but this De Palma-esque shots, I love them. I've I, I got to be honest, this film is De Palma firing on all cylinders because it, it, it is like the, the panning shot around the room, shot around the table, overhead shot. The beginning, the camera goes above and, and around and, and whatnot. Oh, the, the camera in this film has got a mind of its own. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tremendous, yeah. and it really is visually stunning. It really, really, it is. It really it is. is. This is one of the, I think one of the first films where when I was much, much, much younger, and I first became aware of 
a director and a cinematographer's ability to do things with a camera that I was actively aware of watching the film. Like, fuck, we've gone to this nightclub and he hasn't cut yet. And I know it's not the longest tracking shot. It's nowhere near as long as the Copacabana scene in, in Goodfellas. But it's one one of the first ones, one of the earlier ones that got my attention. Mm. Who was the DOP for it, Sky? Uh, oh, DOP on this one was Stephen H. Burham. He did Untouchables. Uh, he did Mission Impossible. So, you know, he's, he's worked oh, he's with Palmer working. before oh, and right. since. Oh, oh he's yeah. done, he did Mission to Mars as well. Yeah, he also Anthony did Snake guys. Eyes. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Raising Kane. My film, yes, my favourite to Palmer, which we'll talk about later. Spoiler. Spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> jumping ahead. <laughs> Oh, he did, he did Apocalypse Now. No, he didn't. That was Vittorio Storaro. Why is he listing on Victor- Why is he listing on Apocalypse Now then? Was oh, he cameraman? He, he must have been a cameraman. Uh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, talking about great shots, guys. The fucking chase sequence in Grand Central Station. Oh. Oh, well, it starts in the nightclub, doesn't it? It is. With him going down behind the bar, going out through the through the through the that sort of hole in the, the floor cellar. leads to the the basement, the cellar, mm-hmm. and then. Yeah, it, it, it ends up in Grand Central Station. This has got to be one of the longest and most elaborate foot chases in a film because obviously be- between now you've got a train, haven't you? Yeah. Seen yeah. on a train. Yeah. And one yeah. of the longest um, escalators in film. Oh, the escalator. A, it oh. takes an age to go down there. <laughs> it's brilliant. I, I don't think, the first time I ever saw this, I don't think I caught my breath during no, this scene. No. I, it, and, it, and it starts earlier, you know, when um, that, when uh, he's in the car with Penelope Army in there with Gail, um, yeah. with Gail. and uh, you know he's he's trying to get the money he's trying to get in he realises the money's gone yeah and you know or, and, and it's, it doesn't stop no no it's, it doesn't it's brilliant and he, it's, it's, the, it's the building of the tension isn't it yeah and he attaches yeah. himself to the the, um, the Navy guys isn't it as they they get on and as they get off in Grand yeah. Central yeah. so he's he's, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's surrounded himself isn't he you know it is yeah. and you've got that giant gangster the one who can hardly breathe because he's out of breath all the time <laughs> yeah. and you know that he's the reason why he's so slow you know that you know he's going to be playing a big part later yeah <laughs> Blanco from the Bronx? Ain't no hard feelings, Carlito. No. But I gotta think Charlie. about my future too. Charlie. You know, peace that way sometimes, puppy. Come on, let's go. Nah, you stay here. Take it. 
And then, just as I get into the train to Miami, we see this guy running alongside with him. He looks like he's got his um, his, his arm in a sling, isn't it? But yes. beneath the jacket. Turns out that's Benny Blanco. Shoots Carlito first. Uh, well, shoots him three times, doesn't he? And the first time I ever saw Carlito's way in this ending, it just killed me. And I'm okay with it now, but it must have taken. Well, it was years. If if, if I ever wanted to bring up a film right that brought me to tears or close to tears, it was this film. Yeah, I, I like the way that you know the film opens up with him. Yes, you, yeah, uh, and sometimes but it's, it's like it's work. like Sunset but, Boulevard, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it builds up an expectation that so when we see the gangsters chasing him, we think that they are going to be the ones to get him. Yeah, and then when he's at the station, he's just about to get into the train. Yeah. and he's safe. We think, wait a minute, wait a minute, but that, that's not what the yeah. beginning of the film was. And then it turns on a dime. Yeah, set up and payoff, isn't it? Yeah, the setup being Benny Blanco, the payoff being. Well, he should have killed him. Yeah, and yeah. Pachanga being involved. I can't believe we haven't mentioned Louis Guzman. And he is brilliant, isn't he? He's brilliant. And do you know you were saying about when he goes back to the Bronx and he's walking down the street and his cousin yeah. and the guy with the hat was in Scarface as they're walking down. <laughs> Pachanga, as he's walking down the street, he's motioning to people and he's going, look, I'm with Carlito Brigante. Yeah. And he's doing yeah. it. He's, he's, he is superb. He is superb. Yes. There's always a little bit of doubt throughout whenever you see Pachanga, isn't there? Just regardless of what happens at the end, ultimately. But there's something not right because even Ron flags it up, doesn't it? He's like, he'd kill his own man, mother for money. And he, you yeah. know, and you're not quite sure, but he, he seems pretty dedicated because he, he ultimately goes and gets Gail to bring her to Grand Central, doesn't he? And, he does. and you think, well, Pachanga, he's on, the, he's on Carlito's side, you know, he wants to see right by Carlito. But it's, you are right. The, the, when when they run in towards the train and the guy with the, the, the swaying coat and the black hat, the grey hat rather, and it's revealed then it's Benny Blanco. Superb. Yeah. And, and I say I'm okay with it now. I'm kind of resolved of the fact, but I still do get a similar feeling to the one I have when I'm watching The Great Escape. And I'm willing, Hiltz, to make that jump over mm. the barbed wire fence on the motorbike. I'm thinking, now he's going to make it this time. Yes, <laughs> and it's the same here. And I'm just wishing that he and Gail would get on the train together and get away safe. And I just think, oh, if only you'd play this slightly better. Yeah. Well, I think the only way he could have played it better, really, is if he'd, if he'd asked Guzman to kill Benny Blanco. Yeah. No, yeah, it's it's a brilliant, brilliant setup. But if he had asked them to kill Be- uh, Benny ba- um, Benny Blanco, he wouldn't have been who he was. He wouldn't because he was on a different journey. Then he was, he was. But he could have left a nightclub to Guzman, couldn't he? Mm. He could, yeah, yeah. Changa, he could have left a nightclub to him, which would have got him off his back. Yeah, and oh, it's just yeah, it's heartbreaking. It really is. So Carlito's Way it was released in the US on November twelfth, nineteen ninety three, and I find this. Hard to believe, but it wasn't particularly well received by critics. And on a budget of thirty-three million, it made a worldwide gross of sixty-three million, which is you know that's yeah. nothing. But for me, it's it's a, it's an all-timer, and it and it always has been. I adore this film. It's always yeah. been. I I'd never say it's in the top ten of my films because that's fluid. It changes regularly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would I wouldn't mind guessing if you asked me to list twenty-five. I think Carly Way would definitely be in the mix. All right, then, guys, let's um, 
Talk about both films as a whole then. Where do these two films place in your ranking of De Palma's films and in your ranking of the best crime dramas or gangster films or call them wherever you want? Well, I think there's no no doubt. Everybody knows what my favourite De Palma film is and that's Raising King. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's it's crazy. It's I, I mentioned De Palma-esque camera angles and uh, camera movements. Dutch the angles. Film Loads of Dutch angles. Film, yeah, yeah uh, Split Diopter. Everything, yeah. everything is in there. He, he throws and there's um, you know long um, takes in there. There's it's every every um, bullet in his arsenal is thrown into that film, and I adore it. I think that you've got um, Carrie, which is a you know a true favorite of mine. Yeah, and I love you know films like Obsession and things like that. But I think Carlito's Way could be. I would put it possibly third in my Palma after Carrie. Hmm. Well, I've I've written about Carrie for the site. Yeah, I think that's the you know we've not covered the Palmer on the podcast, but I've actually written a piece about Carrie for Film Eighty Nine. That is not in my De Palma top three, isn't it? I think the two films we've talked about okay. tonight would form two of my three favorite De Palma films. Yeah, Carlito's Way has always been up there, and it might be number one. Were it not for the fact that I have not rewatched The Untouchables for a long time. Okay. But I absolutely love The Untouchables, and I have since the day I saw it. I think it's an absolutely magnificent film. It is, yes. I can't wait to cover that film at some point on this podcast, because it is just an all-timer. But Scarface Scarface has got into that top three. Uh, I, I'm, I'm surprised at how much I've gone from just being lukewarm on Scarface and actively aware of the fact that my opinion wasn't a popular one at the time. I'll put it down now to the fact that I was wrong. And the fact that now my eyes have been opened and I genuinely do love Scarface more than I ever have before. I, I see it for what some people, you know, yourself included, would see as flaws. And I have got no argument for them. I think it's down to a matter of personal taste. If you're willing to see this sort of exuberant, excessive 80s sort of fashion, if you want to call it that, uh, as being a good thing or a bad thing. But I think the film perfectly sets out to achieve what it intended. I, I think it's packed full of some great performances. And like we said, with Robert Loggia, some not so great ones. But I think, you know, the good stuff fully outweighs any sort of uh, bad stuff in it. And I, I think it is one of the all-time best crime dramas. Carlito's Way has always been a film that I, I've absolutely loved. Seeing it this time, I think it was a case of because my reinforcement of how much I loved Scarface was there, I, you know, I think I saw, I, I rewatched Scarface and fully fell for it maybe about five years ago. And this was the first time I'd revisited it. And I was thinking, was I just having a bit of a weird day then? And when I rewatched it, I was like, no, I am, I am set on my opinion of this film now. It is a film that I have grown to love. Whereas Carlito's Wave has always been a film I love. So when I rewatched it this time, there, was, there were no surprises. There wasn't really anything new that I was finding about the film, but I don't mean that in any way to the film's detriment because I've seen Carlito's Way a hell of a lot more times than I have Scarface. But yeah, my my top three De Palma films would probably be those three I've mentioned: these two and The Untouchables. Isn't it remarkable that he's made so you know they get three gangster films? He's made four gangster films. I, I'm going. To, I'm going to put a caveat in there, right? I have not watched Blowout for a long time. Yeah. That could also knock one of these out. Yeah, maybe. Can I put a caveat in that I've not seen Blowout and I've heard nothing but great things about it well it's um, I think it's Tarantino's favourite the Palmer film isn't it it is yeah I fully get your sentiment regards to Scarface it's just I think with this rewatch in preparation for this yes it's gaudy yes it's brash it's loud 
only because it has to be for the, the telling of the story uh, in the era that it's yeah. set. It could seriously do with, with an edit. It could seriously lose a good 20, 25 minutes. Because I, I think to a point with Scarface, is one thing that I should have brought up when we talked about it. After a certain point, it gets a little bit boring until no, the final shootout. This is my opinion, right? And I think it gets a little little laboured getting building up to the final shootout in parts. But in, in respect of De Palma's career overhaul, Carlito's Way is definitely top three for me personally. I can tell you this guy, the untouchables, holds up beyond belief. It is. Oh yeah, I've no doubt. It no is doubt. brilliant. It's genuine. Yeah. It's a classic. It's a genuine classic. I would personally, I probably put Untouchables at, at, at the top of his game. Carrie is tremendous. I love Mission Impossible. First Mission Impossible film since the benchmark for that franchise. Yes, it may have been bettered with, say, Fallout, but I, I, I think, and it wasn't particularly a great experience by all accounts making it, but I think that benchmark set in that first film lays the tone for the rest of the franchise. I really like it. Casualties of War, I think, is tremendous. It's, it's a not, oh, not an yeah, easy film yeah. to watch by any stretch. See, when you throw films in like that, yeah, Casualties of War is f- fucking fantastic. It's, it's I, Sean Penn again, but it's not an yeah. easy watch by any no, stretch. No, it's not. It really no. isn't. But then you check in Dress to Kill, Body Double, you know, the, the obvious Hitch, Hitchcock rip-offs that they are. I, I, I'm not a fan of Dress to Kill, I'll be honest. No, I, 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 just... I prefer Body Double of those two, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, nobody's mentioned the sheer insanity, this Phantom of the, of the Paradise. I've not seen that. I've yet. not seen it. Oh, like, no. it's, it's mental. It's and do you know what? I've heard so much good about it, given the fact that it's a it is a musical. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not a, I'm not a fan of musicals, if I'm honest, right? Yeah, I've got that kind of weird reluctance to yeah. to, to ever watch I, it, I, even though I I'm not saying I'm not saying it's a good film, but there you are. Then a timestamp of a time and a place. It certainly is. And yeah. Paul Williams, bless him, huge pop star in the seventies. Is such a weird-looking fellow. It suits the film perfectly. Yeah, and it's 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 got a lot of what would come from De Palma in there. But for me, top three, Untouchables is number one. Carly Dwayne is probably number two. Number three, what would I put? I, I I really do love the first Mission Impossible film. I think it's terrific. So yeah, go on. I'll put Mission Impossible in there. I think the great thing about De Palma is that even some of the films which you don't think as genuine classics, because out of the out of these two films tonight, I think. Carlito's Way is the better film, but I think Scarface is maybe the more interesting film. And I think that sometimes when you you know we haven't mentioned Snake Eyes tonight. Yes, I I, I, I really really like that yeah, film. It's I a did. really interesting film. It's not a masterpiece. It's not yeah. a classic or anything. No. But there's so much in there that I love. I can watch it any time. Do you know that way, guys? And and Leighton, you're probably going to be the best example of this. Goodfellas is your favourite film. Have I mentioned it? You 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 brought it up occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've covered it on an episode you were with us oh yes I was yeah. you would be the prime example of a person who automatically based on your inherent love of the f- of Goodfellas that came out in 1990 you will never be able to replicate what that film did for you when it comes to Casino which many people see as a pseudo kind of follow up to Goodfellas now I was lucky enough to see them so close together that I, I had a, I think a greater appreciation for, for Casino than some people do I will not say it's about the film The Goodfellas, but I do think the same parallel here applies to Scarface and Carlito's Way. And I don't know, and I mean that now in the favour of Scarface, that I don't 
know if Carly Tuzoy would have been as good as it is if it wasn't for the fact that we had Scarface first. I don't disagree with that at all. And I don't know if that comes across making the kind of point that I was trying to make, but Casino gets unfavourably compared to Goodfellas as, ah, well, he's just trying to just retread the the ground that he did there. I don't think Carlito's way is doing that. I think it is a a different, certainly a different enough gangster film. This is is not the rise and fall of a gangster. This is a, this is like Unforgiven for gangster films, isn't it? Mm. Where you had this gunslinger, this guy who probably led a very immoral younger life who has survived now into his older years, maybe against what he ever expected to do. He always expected to die, you know, in a, in a, in a shootout. But he has survived. He has outlived all his enemies. And it is him trying to kind of make amends for past sins. And that's what this film is. That's what Carlito's way is. Yeah, and, the, and in that respect, then, Carlito's legacy goes before him, doesn't it? Much like Will, yes. William Moneys does in uh, Unforgiven. Absolutely, and yeah. I think with regards to the Goodfellas Casino and Scarface and Carlito's Way, there was 10 years between Scarface and Carlito's Way, wasn't there? There yeah, was five, there was five between, between Goodfellas yeah. and Casino. So yeah. in that respect, um, I can totally understand what you're saying. As I said earlier, though, if, if you look at the bare bones of it, without Scarface, you do not get a lot of classic films coming thereafter. And yeah. despite my reservations about Scarface, ultimately... Is it an, an, an enjoyable film? No, it is an enjoyable film. It really is. Have others done it better? Yes, arguably. I think Carlito's Way is a much better film. I really, really do. I think Carlito's Way is truly a really, really good gangster film. No, I, I agree that Carlito's Way is the better film, I think. But I, as I said, I believe that Scarface is the more interesting film. And I think not only to because of its influences, but because of the approach which is so unlike anything that came before it my older self would have been with you all the way late on this and would have said no way no way Kali Uzwe is his best film by far Scarface is nowhere near I don't feel like that anymore and if you're going to put it down to simple numbers why well, I would be scoring both of these films out, out of 10 I'm not going to give away um, what I what I what I would score them because we don't tend to score older films, do we? We only kind of give scores to new films that we're kind of forced to review by the nature of what we are. But um, for me, in my rankings of my favourite sort of crime dramas, I would put Scarface far closer to Carlito's Way than I ever would before. I genuinely really have had a complete about turn on it, and I think it's up there with the all time greats. Yeah, but it's difficult to compare as well, I find, because it, you know, you, you, people often compare things like The Godfather and Goodfellas and things like that. But Scarface is such an anomaly that it's, I find it difficult to put it within that kind of genre. Is it, is it more down to the legacy of Scarface than anything else then? No, no, I, I don't think it is, because when I'm watching it now, I'm not seeing it in terms of his legacy. I'm just enjoying it for what it is. And you don't see many gangster films so bright as that film, you know what I mean? It, yeah. they, they like no, to try, you know. The... Anyway, no, I, 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 I can see both both sides of the coin. I genuinely can, but it, to me, Carlito's Way is a much, much better film than Scarface. I really do think it is. Either way, as good as Raising King. With all his touch angles, yeah. oh, I love it. I do love, I do love John Lithgow, so I'll give you that. So. There we have it, guys and girls. I will look back at Scarface and Carlito's Way and our first sort of uh, deep dive into the works of the brilliant Brian De Palma. 
We hope you've enjoyed the episode. And if you haven't already subscribed to Film 89, then please do so. So you don't miss out on episodes as they drop. Please leave us a positive review on your podcast provider of choice, especially if it's Apple Podcasts. Please also check out the website, film89.co.uk. You can check out my previous piece on Brian De Palma's Carrie and a load of other written goodies by myself and Neil and Richie and Steve and Leighton and dozens of other writers on film, including, most recently, Martin Kessler's huge three-part essay on the 90th anniversary of 1933's King Kong and its legacy. And it is, it is a cracker. Gents, where can people find you if they want to discuss films, television, or if they just want to see some videos of your really bad Tony Montana impressions? I would never think of trying to do a Tony Montana. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. No, I'll just go to uh, Twitter and it's at Welsh Bluesman. Uh, Twitter, at Late Winst. I was advised not to do um, Tony Montana impressions prior to recording and I won't be doing it. Can I just say, quick, <laughs> can I just say quickly, gents, whilst we've been recording this, there's been some really sad news. Um, Lan- I know. Lance Reddick. Um, has yeah, passed away. Lance Reddick from The Wire and John Wick. Yeah. He's died age sixty. Yeah, which is oh, no. which is truly really is sad news. I know. Um, I think The Wire is the greatest television show ever created. He is a huge mainstay amongst a cast that is just bewildering of about forty different characters throughout the five yeah. years, and yeah. Lance Reddick excels as Daniels throughout. And he's been a brilliant supporting actor in, as you say, the John Wick film. So um, this is very, very sad to hear. And um, it is. Yeah. I think I think yeah. a lot of love goes to to his family and friends this evening. Yeah, a- absolutely. Rest in peace, Lance Reddick. What a what a brilliant, brilliant actor. Oh, that's sad news that is. So you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, and you can find the rest of the Film 89 team obviously on the website, film89.co.uk, and on Twitter and Facebook at Film 89 UK. And if you'd like to send us questions, requests for future episodes, or your own Tony Montana impersonations, you can email us, admin at film89.co.uk. So, until next time, stay safe, be excellent to one another, but more importantly... Say hello to my little friend. (laughs) Yeah, yo. (laughs) We're out of here.